Welcome to another broadcast of Hope for the Heart. My name is William Rogers, giving another message today out of the book of Revelation. I've been out of the book of Revelation for a few weeks, and now I'm back in it. And our text for today is Revelation chapter 21, verses 4 through 8. I've entitled this today, A Picture of Heaven, uh, because that is what, exactly what John is doing. He is painting the picture of heaven as he sees it and as he is being told what to write about this wonderful place. So, if you would like to read along in the scriptures, I'm going to read these scriptures to us. And uh, you can, I encourage you to get your copy of God's Word and follow along with me. Uh, the text is Revelation chapter 21. The Word of God reads in verse 4, And he shall wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there shall no longer be any death. There shall no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write, for these things are faithful and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Omega, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. Then verse 7, He who overcomes shall inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. What a tremendous section of the book of Revelation. And uh, sometimes when I'm teaching the book of Revelation or teaching about heaven, I'll ask this question to the, to the crowd, and that is, how many of you have a loved one in heaven? And it's amazing to me how many hands go up. Uh, because, you know, many of us, or if not most of us, have someone that we've been close to that is in heaven. And so you can't help but think about this place uh, as the place where they are. That's your view of heaven is, well, that's where they are. I know uh, having just lost my wife, uh, Carol, she's, uh, I think about this, and it just, it just uh, it, it's, it becomes almost overwhelming for me to say, well, this is where Carol actually is right now. This is what she is experiencing. This is what is going on with her, at least to some point right now, in heaven. And so if you would look at this with me, we uh, began uh, several weeks ago in Revelation 21 talking about heaven. John kind of takes a broad stroke of the brush and paints for us some things about heaven. He begins in verse 1, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Uh, then I saw the holy city New Jerusalem, and then he came to verse 3, and he said, I heard a loud voice from the throne. Uh, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he shall dwell among them. They shall be his people, and God himself shall be among them. Now, I'm starting in verse 4 today, but verse 4 connects to verse 3. Notice verse 4 begins with and, showing that it connects to the previous verse. And the previous verse is verse 3, which talks about God. We've talked about that in, uh, extensively, and so if you uh, have a chance to go back and listen to that, uh, if you want to catch up. But it's talking about the things that we will uh, experience through this in heaven, because it ends in verse 3 by saying, and God himself shall be among them. And so we broke that down and said there are three things about God that are true about heaven, uh, that are true in heaven. And number one, the greatest joy or the greatest excitement or the greatest part of heaven is verse 3 of Revelation 21. It's being with God himself. 
and said, we will be with him. That's where uh, your love, when you think of heaven, do you think of a loved one that is there? Well, this is where uh, they are, and this is what they're going to experience. They will be and already are with God himself. It says that in verse 3. And then we will see him. We will see him. Part of being with him is we will see him. And we got into explaining what that was. And then we will serve or we will worship him. That's what verse 3 talked about. And then he comes over into verse 4. And we're going to see some changes. And so John is told to write this. And we're going to see how he's told to write this. But he's given us some changes. And we can't always understand the changes. I know heaven has proven to be a, an extraordinary place for people who, like John, uh, the Apostle Paul, uh, and then Ezekiel, to talk about. You can read Ezekiel's description of heaven, and you really come away with not knowing what heaven is. Uh, Paul was uh, allowed to see heaven, but he was not allowed to talk about it or write about it. In fact, he was given a thorn in the flesh that stopped him from writing about heaven. So we don't know what he saw. But we know that, and I've had heard so many sermons on what the thorn in the flesh was for Paul. But whatever it was, was a reminder to him that he is not to speak of the things which he saw. You can only imagine, because we, we come into the, the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, and John is told to... Uh, to write what he sees. He's told in several different times. I think it's nine times in the book of Revelation he's told to write these things uh, like he's told again this time. And so we see that in verse 5. And so he's writing these things and he's given us some things about heaven. And you have probably have heard a lot of this that's in this section, verses 4 through 8, mentioned in a lot of uh, sermons or messages given at funerals. I myself have used this. So we look at this and we see that there are some changes coming. But I want you to notice that this, what I'm going to break this down to is, number one, if you want to make a small little outline, something God will do. We see that God's, we will be with him and he shall be among us in, cha- in verse 3 of chapter 21. But in verse 4, which would begin a whole new outline from, that I would give, would be something that God will do being among us. First thing is, summing it up, he says, He shall wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there shall no longer be any death. There shall no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. Well, what is he talking about here? Because we we know simplicity, uh, simply, that uh, what what these are. I mean, we we know we've we've had tears. Uh, we've had death. We know what death is. We've we know what mourning or crying or pain is. But what is he really giving us here? I think he's summing up the old human human experiences as we have known them. Now, this is not for people already in heaven to read, so they'll know. This is for us on the way to heaven, so that we'll know just how different it will be. It's to tell us now that the human experiences that you have now are going to be changed forever. It's going to be gone forever. In verse 4, it's what John says, He shall wipe away, and here comes some negatives that he's going to give us to explain to us so that we might understand 
the impossible to understand in a way that we can understand them. He gives the negatives. He shall wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall no longer be any death. There shall no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And I think what John is saying is it's, it's not going to be like, uh, like it is here. It's, everything is going to be so different. And I find it interesting that he starts with these things that could be related a lot to emotion to be the first things he gives us as far as negatives about our life on earth now compared to what our life will be in heaven. John rehearses these changes uh, that describe such a dramatically different life. In fact, if we look at what John says just in verse 4 and compare it to our life, we can already see <coughs> it is going to be dramatically different for us. And again, I say we can't really comprehend something that we can't comprehend. So he tells us what it won't be like in order to get us to a place to where we can at least refer to it or reference it. So the first one is no more tears. Well, it's amazing the volumes of materials out there or books written on what no more tears has to relate to. Uh, Some people say, well, when we get to heaven, it's going to be such a... Uh, a different moment for us. We're just going to be crying our eyeballs out in heaven and God has to come along and wipe these tears up for us and stop our crying because we're just so excited to be there. Well, I don't think that's what this means. I, I really don't see that at all. I think that what John is referring to here is uh, tears in heaven is, is not like we would might think. I don't think we would have any basis upon our arriving in heaven and having so much weeping going on that Jesus has just got to come along and wipe away all of our tears. Now, there may be some truth to a little bit of that, but I don't think that's what he's talking about. I think uh, some people might say, and I've heard read this, that, that well, our record of our sins, uh, we're going to be thinking about our sins uh, that, that he's paid for. And I, I don't think there's that either. I think the record of our sins was put on Jesus Christ. He already paid the penalty for it. There's now, therefore, no condemnation to those in Christ Jesus. Uh, and not only this, I think uh, we, we know that when we look at that, there, there's a praise attached to that. Uh, I don't think there's a, a remembering our sin and, and going into heaven with so much crying. So we're not all going to be mourning and groaning and weeping and wailing all over heaven, uh, waiting for the Lord to come around with a supernatural handkerchief and just kind of wipe away all of our tears. I don't think that's what John is meaning to tell us here. I think what when you look at the actual words here, the original language is actually saying he shall wipe away, and then he gives a Greek word that means every single tear. What it means is there will never be a tear in heaven, not one single tear. There will never be anything sad in heaven. There will be nothing disappointing in heaven. There will be nothing unfulfilling in heaven. There will be nothing lacking in heaven. There will be nothing wrong in heaven. There will be nothing uh, limiting in heaven. There will be nothing to cry about in heaven. And I know as I thought about this with this week, I thought about, well, gosh, there's so many ways to look at tears. Tears don't just relate to something sad, uh, and tears don't just relate to grieving. I know that when the, 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 the books and the things I've read this week on 
on the tears in heaven, what are they representative of? What was John talking about? Uh, well, I think generally he's talking about there won't be any times of crying. Uh, whether they be tears of misfortune, poverty, loneliness, uh, uh, lost loved ones, or sympathy, or mercy, or pity, or, 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 or all of these things. Tears of remorse, of regret, of tear. there's tears in repentance. There's tears in every, so there's so many areas of our life which are all gone forever. And I think that's John's point. I don't think his point is to analyze why there's tears. Uh, I think somebody, uh, I think it was John MacArthur who put it, uh, he said, let me just put it to you in a, in a clinical form. You won't have any tear ducts. Uh, you won't be capable of crying. Uh, well, then that may be. I mean, it doesn't say all of that, but it very well could be. Uh, but there's tears of joy. There's tears of excitement that we have here. I know people who get just so overwhelmed in telling a story where there's joy attached to it that they have tears and they, they weep some in, in telling the story. And that's okay. It's not a, not a bad thing. But all of those tears will be gone. And beginning, he, he ends, remember, tears are part of the thing that's in the list of things that he gives us that have passed away. They don't exist. And so he comes along and then he adds another one to it. Not only are there tears, but, but there's something else God will do. The first thing God will do is he'll wipe away our tears. The second thing God will do is there will be no more death. And that's all he says about it. Uh, and there shall no longer be any death. Well, here on earth, whether everything dies. Everything that has life dies. Whether it's a plant, a tree, everything has death attached to it. Uh, there shall no longer be any death. The greatest uh, mortal curse is gone, death. As Paul promised in 1 Corinthians 15, it's swallowed up in victory. Death is gone. It is eliminated. Nobody will die. Once we arrive in heaven, that's it. There will never be death. Death itself, if we go back to chapter 20 of the book of Revelation, death itself is thrown into the lake of fire. Well, what does that mean? I don't know. I don't know what it means. What that tells us is that death dies. Death is gone. Gone forever. Uh, and then he says, he comes along and he's, look at what else he says. Not only is there, there shall no longer be any death, there shall no longer be any mourning. And then he puts some things with it like crying or pain. Mourning, crying, or pain. And uh, usually it gets separated with mourning as the next one. And then with the mourning is, is crying. Just another way of saying mourning that brings tears, uh, whether it be sorrow, distress, repression that leads to tears, there won't be any of that. Not at all. There won't be anything to get us depressed. There won't be anything to get distressed about. Uh, and I know that for a lot of people, they're not going to feel like they have anything to do in heaven if there's nothing to get stressed about. But I think this is uh, really what, what he's telling us here is that life is really going to be a lot different. Uh, it's a fulfillment, really, of Isaiah uh, chapter 53 when he talks about this next one because he talks about uh, the, the mourning and then he talks about uh, the pain that is there. Uh, no more pain because the healing promise, which is in the atonement, is fulfilled. And, and Isaiah 53 talks about this. Now, I know this is a dangerous place to go when you talk, talk about Isaiah 53 because it's been distorted by so many to say his stripes, by his stripes we are healed 
and they take that as a physical healing now on earth. But I, I don't think that's what that that does refer to. But here I think you can say he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And we know that Jesus died for our sins. But how about this? More than that, by his scourging, we are healed of all of these other things. You say, well, isn't he just talking about spiritual healing? Yes, but it's not just spiritual healing because if you go over to chapter 8 of Matthew, it says that Jesus took the hand of Peter's mother-in-law, touched her, and the fever left her. He healed all who were ill. And then he says in verse 17, in order that he might fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah, he himself took our infirmities and carried away our diseases. And so you look at this and you think, wow, he is, it's got to be more than just what we always uh, see in Isaiah 53. There's more there that he is talking about. The physical won't come now. We, there's not going to be a place you can get to where you won't get any more sickness, no more pain, the death. All of that is, 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 is later in heaven. And that's exactly what he did at the cross. We just don't realize that until we get into heaven, all that really the redemption at the cross did. But Jesus died for our diseases, and someday uh, they'll all be gone. He died for our tears, and someday they'll all be gone. And our mourning and our crying and our pain and our death will be gone, and all sin will be gone. But it's not gone now. It will be one day, and that's the catalog of no mores. At the end of verse 4, he says the first things have passed away. He just sums them all up by giving us this title, first things. They belong to the first heaven, the first earth. They belong to the physical life that we know here on earth now. They will not belong in the new heaven, in the new earth, and the new position that we will have in heaven. They are, they are the blessed exemptions from heaven. They won't be there. It'll be absolute eternal, as one writer puts it, bliss. Everyone will be uh, happy as conceivable because to be in the presence of God, again, referring to verse 3. But then he comes along with uh, uh, something that God says, and it goes into verse 5. Look at verse 5. He's, and he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Uh, one writer puts it that he gives suddenly, instead of all the negatives in verse 4, he gives a positive statement in verse 5. And he doesn't really give us any detail about it. It just says, I'm making all things new. And that's all that John can really say about the positive side. Everything uh, will be different. Everything will be new. So he said, he who sits on the throne, and who's that? Who is the one who sits on the throne that he says in verse 5? He said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Right, for these words are faithful and true. Uh, somewhere, I think someone, uh, or the same thing is said back in chapter 20, verse 11. I saw a great white throne, him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. He who sat upon the throne, obviously the eternal God, the eternal Christ, for both of them are on the throne. The Son is sitting on the Father's throne with the Father, uh, God and God in Christ. The one who created the first time will do so again, the Lord himself. And he says, I am making all things new, a whole new existence. 
And this, this is where I have a, a, such a difficult time. I, it's like we, we, our brain and our mind, our faith will only let us go to a certain point. We just can't understand what all is there. Uh, and I know I think about this when I think about uh, uh, Carol being in heaven. I think, boy, if Carol could tell me right now what does this verse mean, <coughs> who knows what she would tell me. She might say, "Wait, you've got it all wrong. It's, it's totally different than even that. It's, it's just so different. I don't know what she would say. But we do know that it's, it's talking about this new existence. We know we're going to have a new body, not made with hands, and that's exactly uh, what all of this has to incorporate. It, it's completely different from the creation we know now, completely different. Uh, this is a corruptible one. We are going to an incorruptible one. This is a perishable one. We are going to an imperishable one. This is an earthly one. That's a heavenly one. This is a natural one. There's going to be a new, which will be a spiritual one. Utterly different. And it will be utterly unique. No decay, no decline, no used up energy, no waste, no nothing of any similarness to this life. And I can't imagine being up there and seeing this and trying to think of a way to tell people back down here. You would say it's just not worth it. They would never understand it. Of course, I would probably say, and they wouldn't believe me anyway. But I suppose John probably, as he's going through this, I want you to catch this. This may not be true, but it looks like it is. That John just kind of gets lost in the, in the overwhelmingness of this when... Uh, this voice from the throne talking about God in verse 3 and says, uh, and God himself shall be among them. And, and John is able to, to hear this voice. And this voice says, he shall wipe away uh, every tear from their eyes and there shall no longer be any death, no longer any mourning or crying or pain. All of those which, by the way, John is experiencing on the Isle of Patmos at the time he's called up into heaven. So he knows how different it's going to be. And so it's almost as like he's thinking and he's getting a little bit overwhelmed because the voice also says to him, John, or he didn't, didn't call him by name, but that's, that's the way I read it. That's the Williams translation. It says, right, for these words are faithful and true. It's as though, uh, it's as though he just kind of stops for a moment. Uh, with overwhelmed because in the middle he, he just the voice of the Lord right it's like you know John kind of lost his concentration I know when I'm sometimes I read I, I just kind of my brain just kind of goes off into a uh, you know we, we call it chasing a rabbit or going in to another direction it, it may be an indication that John was so overwhelmed by this <coughs> that he just stopped and the, the uh, words right means to go ahead and keep writing this. Don't stop. Keep writing, John. You're almost done, but not quite. Keep writing. These are faithful and true words. And we've heard those again and again through the book of Revelation. Like chapter 3, verse 14. Chapter 19, verse 11. And so he's telling John to keep writing. Just keep going, John. To... to, to to keep entering all of the information that I'm giving you so that you can record all of this and keep it going. Do not stop. 
The incredible description is the description of the end at the very event that is signified by the term, it is done. Because look at what he says. Faithful and true are these words. They're faithful and true. Then he said to me, it is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts. So what we're seeing here is just a little bit of change in the outline. So no more is he saying uh, what God will do, which was verse 4. But now he's going to give us some statements, something that God says about some things. And so the first is, I am making all things new. I'm making them all new. God was the creator of the first, and he will be the creator of the second. But this incredible description, it is done, it is over, it is the end, write it down. He says, I am Alpha, the Omega, and the beginning and the end. In other words, I can say it, it's the end, because I'm in charge of the beginning, and I'm in charge of the end. I am the one who started it. I am the one who ends it. God is just simply unfolding in all of human history His sovereign purpose and plan. I know in Isaiah 46.10, in fact, I want to turn to that because I just love that verse, and I get overwhelmed with it sometimes when I read this because... Uh, It's saying almost the same thing from another vantage point. It says, declaring the end from the beginning. This is God speaking here in in his judging uh, Babylon. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been seen. Saying, my purpose will be established. I will accomplish all that my good pleasure allows. But then he says this, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me. Declaring the end from the beginning. Declaring the end at the beginning. From the beginning. So in other words, God can write the ending at the beginning because he is the one writing the ending. God is in charge of it all. And this is just another way of saying the the sovereignty of God is there and it is ruling and it is in control. In other words, I can say it's over because I'm in charge. You know, you know the phrase, it's not over until I say it's over. Well, here he's saying it's not over until God says it's over, and God is saying it is over. And so what is he saying here when he says in verse 6, he said to me, it is done. It's the same kind of phrase used on the cross to represent it is finished. It's done, it is over, I am the one who is the origin, I am the one who is the completion All the changes are done, and the new heaven and the new earth is in place. The redemptive history ends, and the rest is eternal bliss. And there's really no particulars to tell. It's just eternal perfection. You know, I I don't know how our mind could take us more past that than what he actually gives. But I do want to give a couple of these phrases that he talks about in here, because he's talking about the residents, those in heaven. Those who are the ones talked about in verse 3, which says, God shall be among them. Who are the them and who are the ones that are not them? So uh, he gives us this by saying that he says this in verse 6. I am Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. So there's two descriptive phrases here that tell us who's going to be in heaven. One is the one who thirsts, and two is the one who overcomes. The one who thirsts, what does that signify? Well, those people who recognize their need, those people who desire to drink, 
It's, we, we, we can relate it to Matthew chapter 5 where Jesus said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. We know who this is. We know this describes the true born-again person. We know it describes the person with a new heart, the person who was thirsty and came to drink from the water of life, the one who comes to Christ for that satisfaction, that fulfillment. Isaiah said it best, Come, you who thirst, you with the parched souls, Simple imagery that pictures a thirsty man. We don't really know what it is to thirst because, well, we got water all we have always got water. Um, you know, I watched some survival show the other night, and the people had gone. It's like end of second day, and they were just falling out. They were so dehydrated. I can't imagine being that thirsty. We have water everywhere, but this is a different kind of thirst. The Apostle John. Uh, is hearing God say, it's the thirsty one. It's the one who's not satisfied. It's the dissatisfied one. And realizing we must go to Christ for that satisfying. And that's simply what he's saying here. When he says, I will give to the one who thirsts water. I will give him satisfaction. I will give him completion. I will give him fulfillment. That is who is going to be in heaven. John 7 says, If any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He was talking at a time when they were celebrating the provision of water that God gave in the wilderness. And as they were pouring out water from those pitchers, the priest, to remember the water in the wilderness, Jesus said, If you really thirst, (coughs) come to me and drink. And even in the book of Revelation, this imagery is repeated. Down in chapter 22, verse 17, the last invitation of the Bible, which we're going to cover in just a few weeks. The Spirit and the bride say, in Revelation 22, 17, Come, and let the one who hears say, Come, and let the one who is thirsty come, and let the one who wishes to take the water of life without cost, just like Isaiah said. Let him come and drink of the water of life. But then it also... Uh, it, uh, the, the, the book of Revelation, and many times through the Bible, we see this phrase, uh, overcoming. So not only uh, is the one thirsty, but heaven belongs to those who overcome. Verse 7, he who overcomes shall inherit these things. It isn't enough to know you need it. There's something involved. The overcomer, well, what does that mean? Well, if you go back to First John chapter 5, we find out it means in chapter 4, First uh, John 5, 4, Whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. And so we know there is something involved in this. There's, this is who he's talking to. He's talking to born-again people. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. And the second death he talks about in, in chapter uh, 20 when he says in this, and I'll read this to you in chapter 20 of Revelation. He says... Uh, uh, blessed and holy is the one who has part in the first resurrection. And over these, the second death has no power. And so he's talking about that. Well, those who are the part of the first resurrection will not experience the second death, which is first worse than the first death. But then he gives the list of those who are not going to be in heaven. So the, those in heaven are those who are thirsty and those who are overcomers. But then he says this in verse 8. This is a statement by contrast. This is what he says. 
Uh, but for the cowardly and the unbelieving, the abominable and the murderers and the immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake of fire that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. So those who are not part of the first resurrection will experience that. And they are outside of heaven. They will never be allowed into heaven. They are separated from God. They can't be there. They just can't be there. That's all part of it. So who's going to be in heaven? These people who have parts, character, or their souls. These people who recognize their sinfulness. These people who have come to Christ and have experienced the forgiveness. These people who have the, the new heart is the one who is going to heaven. And those outside of heaven are those that he gives is, is this is this also a summation of, of what is in 1 Corinthians chapter 6? We see the same kind of list again. But that is all part of, of what, he's, what he's given us here. Those that will be the recipients. That will be with God. And God will dwell among them. And God will be their, their God. And they will be his, his son. And I'll have to touch on that at another time because there's so much there. But again, this has been William Rogers. And I thank you so much for joining me as we continue through our verse-by-verse study of the book of Revelation. And uh, we look forward to next time.